wrap up this series we've been doing, um, really talking about what's new in the scripture and how God does all things new. And last week we talked about being in a new creation, and I'll just give you by way of update. Uh, we had a woman who said that she trusted Christ as her Savior last week. And so, yes, you can give the Lord a hand for that. Luke chapter 15 says that all of heaven rejoices when one sinner repents, turns to Jesus Christ as Savior. And so all of heaven rejoiced when that happened. And I, hopefully that's a, just a sign of things to come here at this school. And God makes all things new. And he's doing a new work. And he's doing a new work in us in the church. He wants to do a new work in you. And today we're going to wrap up as we look at Romans chapter 12 and look at the renewed mind and how important the renewed mind is. And I'm going to pray for us and we'll open the scriptures together. Father God, thank you that we get to come before you, that we get to, to worship you, that we get to be a family, a church family. And I pray that you'd help to bind us together in close relationships with one another, that we could speak truth to one another and encourage each other when we're down and confront each other when that's necessary and do all those things that a church body. And I pray you would do that to us through your word right now. God, will you grow us? Will you change us? It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Well, if you haven't been with us over the last several weeks, we've been doing this series called All Things New. And I've been talking about in the series how we're fascinated with the new. If you get a a new kid that comes to school, you don't know stuff about them. You're fascinated with them because they're a mystery. Or a new product comes out and people want to get the new product because there's something attractive about some products just because they say new on them. And I propose the idea, and I don't know if this is true, but I propose the idea, what if... Our attraction to the new isn't just because marketers know how to push our buttons or get us to scratch a certain itch. But what if it's because we're made in the image of God? I know that that's true, that we're made in the image of God. And that while he is the ancient of days, the same yesterday, today, and forever, he does not change. He's always doing a new thing. And so you look at the scriptures and you see in the very first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis called the book of beginnings, it says, in the beginning, God created And then it's all new stuff. There wasn't a heaven, there wasn't earth. Water, sky, clouds, plants, animals, people, marriage, all that stuff was new. And you say, but eventually it gets old, right? But then you jump to the end of the book in Revelation, Revelation chapter 21. That's time that we haven't experienced yet. The one who's seated on the throne said, I'm making, God the Father said, I'm making everything new. You say, okay, well, he's going to do a new thing. No, but then you go cover to cover, and you look in between the Bible, and you see, you go jump in the middle. Isaiah 43, 19, 700 years before God does a new thing and has Jesus put on flesh and walk this earth, he says, behold, I'm doing a new thing. And we see that he has a new covenant, new mercies, there's a new heaven, new earth, new Jerusalem. He commands us to sing a new song. He gives us new commandments. He tells us he's going to give us a new heart, a new spirit. He does a new work. He starts the church. The church was a new thing. There's all these new things that he's continually doing. And we've talked about in this series how God's mercies are new every day. Amen? He talked about how we are a new creation. For everybody who's done what that woman did last week and placed their faith in Jesus Christ, you've got a new identity, a new way of life. And today we're going to talk about a renewed mind and the importance of a renewed mind. We're going to be in the book of Romans. It's in the back of the New Testament after the book of Acts, if you have your Bibles, in Romans chapter 12. You can go ahead and turn there. As you're turning there, I'll just encourage you to think about how hard it is to change our minds. Just think about how many times you've tried to change someone else's mind. Some of you might be in sales, and it's like your job to change other people's minds. Like, you don't want, no, no, you really do want this. Let me tell you why you want to buy these things. And then there's the rest of us who don't think we're in sales. But let me ask you this. Parents, have you ever tried to get your kids to eat asparagus? You're in sales. Honey, no, I know it looks like a stick from the backyard, but it's not. I know it tastes like, it smells funny, it tastes like a stick from the backyard, but trust me, it's good. Yeah, try to change someone's mind in that situation. If you've got it figured out, I would love to talk to you after the service. Think about your own mind. There's times when you want to be able to change your mind and you can't. Like, for instance, have you ever been to a restaurant and you order a meal and you feel pretty good about your order until your friend's order comes out and you think, I wish I had ordered that. That's called order envy. You wish you could change your mind at that moment. Or maybe this happened to you this week. You ever drive in your car in rush hour and you change lanes and it's like as soon as you change into a lane, it stops. It's usually the far left lane for some reason. I don't know why, but you get in that lane and then you start watching the car that was in front of you and next they're home and you haven't moved. That's lane envy. 
You wish you could change your mind at that moment. And there's things that are harder to change your mind in as well, because some of those are circumstantial. But for instance, I'll just as an example, football season's starting. Some of you know that I'm a Detroit Lions fan. That is something I've tried to change about myself many times in my life. If you don't know, the Detroit Lions are the only team that's ever gone 0-16 in a football season. If you, if you don't watch any other Lions game, which I recommend you don't, if you watch it on Thanksgiving Day with your family, there will be people in the stands that have bags on their heads because they're so embarrassed at how mediocre this franchise is. Now, I was born in that area. I liked them. When I was a kid, I had a second team because that's what you did as a kid because you knew they weren't going to win anything. You cheer for them and you pick a second team. I've tried to make my second team sometimes become my first team. And this is like confession that I'm sharing with you. I almost feel like I was cheating on them. I've gone to other teams' websites, San Diego Chargers, Miami Dolphins. My wife tries to get me to go to the Dallas Cowboys. I just can't do it. Sorry, James. I want to change, but they're like a bad disease. And they just won't go away. And I can't change my mind, which is bad news when I read this quote that I read this week that George Bernard Shaw, it was said that he wrote this one time, progress is impossible without change. Let that sink in, leaders. And those who cannot change their minds cannot change anything. Now, put that next to our vision statement as a church, why we say that we exist. We say all the time, maybe you're new here today, but I'll say say it for your sake, that we exist to connect people to Jesus, and Jesus is the key, for life change. If what Shaw says is true, which is not from the Bible, but I think it's still true, that without changing your mind, they're changing the lighting. Without changing your mind, (laughs) that change is impossible, then guess what? Our vision can't happen. If, If it requires for you to change, your mind to change, in order for you to have life change, transformation we talk about, then your mind has to be changed. So we're talking about bigger stuff than just food orders, lanes that we drive on the expressway, and football teams. We're talking about stuff that can be painful. And I have to give a confession to you as a church before we really dive into the scripture today and say, yesterday, I work on the message during the week before yesterday, but yesterday I was putting some finishing touches on the message. When I started to work on this message yesterday, I went to pray, and it wasn't like scripted prayer or anything, I just, what was on my heart. And my first words were, God, I hate growth. And I'm going to preach to you about growth. So I don't want to be a hypocrite. I went on to then say some very shallow things, which I'm not sure I'm ready (laughs) to say in front of the whole church. But the essence of it was because growth is painful, and that doesn't always mean tragedy in your life. Sometimes it does mean circumstantial. Sometimes it's just God exposes sin, and that's painful. Sometimes God exposes ways that you think about him that aren't true, and that's sometimes painful. Or ways that you think about yourself that aren't true, lies that we believe. And so what he has to do is then change our minds, and it's painful And so I want to acknowledge to you that I don't always love this, but I realize it's better, but I don't want to go through the pain. I wish there was a fast forward button. I wish you could, I used to say this in college, I wish you could just pay the money for college tuition, they give you a little chip, insert it behind your ear, and you'd be good to go. And skip the process. And so I want to say to you, I know that we're going to preach this message today, and it won't be just this message that changes you. But are you open to being changed? Because it's going to mean a changing of your mind. And today we're going to talk about the importance of the renewed mind. Romans chapter 12, we're going to look at verses 1 and 2. If I were really going to give you, if we're going to do justice to Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, I'd have to preach you all of the first 11 chapters of Romans because it's so important. But we don't have time for all of that. And don't start to stress out if you've got a lunch appointment. Let me tell you why it's important. Here's one guy that I read this week. He said this, talking about Romans as a whole. It is the foundational document of the Christian faith. It is the Constitution, the Declaration of Independence, the Bill of Rights, and the Emancipation Proclamation in one document. And then he says, if the rest of the New Testament were lost, every great truth of the Christian belief could be drawn from Romans. What we have in the first 11 chapters of Romans is what's the indicative statements. And it's because of the indicatives we can do the imperatives. For those of you who aren't grammarians, because of all the declared truth about God, that's what the first 11 chapters are. Then he tells us what to do as a result of that in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. If you don't get the first 11 chapters, everything I'm going to say to you today is going to seem like a burden to you. Do these commands. But you do the commands in light of the truths of the first 11 chapters. A summary of the book of Romans is this. It's about the righteousness of God. 
The first three chapters are talking about how we have broken minds, that we give ourselves over to defiled minds, that we suppress God's righteousness, and that draws his wrath. The next, from chapter 3, verse 22 through chapter 5, talks about how Jesus Christ took on the wrath of God and became sin for us so that we could, remember last week, we don't just, he doesn't just look the other way on our sin, we become his righteousness. Chapter 6 through 8 talk about the implications of that truth. There's some great passages of Scripture in Romans chapter 6 through 8. Romans chapter 6, verse 4, raised to walk in a new way of life. You'll hear me say that sometimes when we baptize people because that's what they're declaring. Romans chapter 8, there's no condemnation. For those who are in Christ Jesus, nothing can separate you from the love of God. All these amazing truths. And then in chapter 9 through 11, it's really written to Israel. And it's Paul writing to Jewish believers saying, you're letting all these Gentiles in, all these non-Jews. How are you going to possibly keep your promises to Israel? And he's saying God is faithful even when he's doing stuff that doesn't make sense to you. And then it stops in chapter 11 with this doxology of praise. If you read verses 33 through 36, it ends with, For him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Amen. Then chapter 12, therefore. Now, I have to stop here, don't I? If you were here last week, what, what kind of idiot would I be if I just read past therefore after I told you, whenever you start a verse and it says therefore, you got to ask yourself the question, what is the therefore? You guys are so cheesy. Where do you get this stuff? Why is, why is this verse starting with therefore? Well, it ties back to those first 11 chapters we just looked at. It's the so what? Now what? We know all these amazing truths about God. It's just caused Paul to burst forth in praise. Now what do we do? It reminds me when I was uh, in school in algebra class, I remember one time raising my hand and asking my algebra teacher, why do I need to know this? He didn't give me a great answer, by the way. He said, well, in case you're ever an algebra teacher, to which I thought, problem solved. (laughs) That is not my future. I still don't know how many times I figured out why a letter is a number. Anyway, therefore here is tied, why do you need to know this? Why are these, why are the first 11 chapters, they're all about God's mercy? Why? Look at what it says. Therefore, I urge you, brothers. And so this is really written to those of you who placed your faith in Jesus. I know every week we have people who are skeptical, are figuring it out. Maybe you're a guest, maybe even come to this church, maybe your spouse makes you come, whatever it is. This isn't really to you today. This is to those of you who've placed your faith in Jesus already. You can listen to this, but it's really to believers. Brothers, in view of God's mercy... Offer your bodies as, a living, as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. I thought worship was singing. I thought worship was giving money. I thought worship was serving. Mm-hmm. Your whole life, your career, your thoughts, when you eat and drink, and whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Some translations say you're rational, you're logical. It's the only thing that makes sense. Verse 2. Negative command and positive command. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then their promise. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will, his desire for your life. God's will is his good, pleasing, sometimes different than your plan, but notice that last one, perfect will. So you want to know what God's plan for your life is? Got to have a renewed mind. Want to be transformed? Want to be changed? Got to have a renewed mind. Do you see how central it is in this passage? Do not conform, be transformed. How does that happen? By the renewing of your mind. Life change is not possible if your mind is not going to be changed. And it's not just you think a different thought. It's actually a renewal the whole way you view everything. So we talk about as a church, connecting people to Jesus for life change. And a lot of times the mistake we can make is this is that we think that life change is just like what happened for the woman last week who said she placed her faith in Jesus. It's when somebody who's without hope and without God gets reconciled to God. It's like, like if there was a, a line right here, and it's when somebody it goes from not believing in Jesus to believing in Jesus. And we think, yes, let's go get the next one. As if this is a finish line. What happened to that moment is the person moved from not belief to belief. That's the starting line. And now there's all that stuff that I, was, I talk about as painful. It's called growth. And so life change doesn't stop when someone places their faith in Jesus. It starts at that point. And now God wants to keep doing a change in your life and in my life. And that's the stuff that we're talking about when we talk about here being transformed. And that is why 
a renewed mind is so important. And today, it's Labor Day weekend. I'm not going to dump a whole bunch of content on you. More and more things to think about. Take it easy. I'm just going to give you two points today. I'm going to give you two keys or two essential things about a renewed mind that show why it is so important. And the first one is simply this. The renewed mind is essential to total commitment to God. The renewed mind is essential to total commitment to God, which is the very thing this text is calling for. The language that's used here to offer yourselves as living sacrifices, it's Old Testament language for a sacrifice. And if you think about a sacrifice, when those animals were killed on the altar, uh, they didn't just declaw them. <laughs> it wasn't a partial sacrifice. It was a total commitment on the cross, on the altar, when they were laid down. As the bulls and the goats and lambs' necks were slit. It was all in. And that's the thing that Jesus calls for. It's what this passage is calling for. And I realize that that can cause like dissonance in some of our minds because that's not oftentimes how we hear Christianity presented. It's by churches, by church leaders, probably by me at times. And you think about what Jesus asked for, though, and that's continually what you see. Think about when Jesus called disciples to come follow him. When he called those fishermen, come follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. What was happening? There's four guys, Peter, James, Andrew, John, that were there. And Jesus comes by. They're cleaning their nets at their boats. And he says, I'm not going to make you, have you be a fisherman. I'm going to make you a fisher of men. Clever play on words. Jesus said cheesy things as well. I'm in good company. But what was he really saying? I'm going to change your identity. I'm going to change your mission. I'm going to change everything about your life. But what did they have to do? If you're familiar with the pastors, they had to drop their nets. Their nets were everything that was secure, everything that was safe. That was their identity. That was their business. They had to, that was total surrender. That's what Jesus calls for. Last week I mentioned uh, Levi, the tax collector. Some of you who own your own businesses, think about what it would be like to be Levi, the tax collector. Because I talked about how bad it was. People don't like tax collectors and how Jesus has given them a new beginning, it's a new start. What I didn't tell you, why would anyone, want to, why would anyone do that job? Let me tell you why. It makes a lot of bank. They did it for the money. When Jesus says to Levi, come follow me, he's saying this, leave your franchise. Rome owned it, but they were running it. That booth, when he gets up and walks away from that booth, I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. Someone else is going to fill that slot, and he can't go back. So I'm not saying every business owner that Jesus is saying this to you today. He was saying it to Levi. What if he did say it to you? Hey, if you really want to follow me, you've got to walk away from your business that you've worked so hard to build up. It's total surrender. And you think, well, he said it to Levi and he said it to Peter, Andrew, James. I'm glad he doesn't say that to me. But then you get to when he says a call to everyone. When we get back into the book of Mark, we're going to talk about this in Mark chapter 8. Jesus says, if anyone, underline anyone, anyone, if anyone, that's everybody in the Bible, everybody after the Bible's written, if anyone's going to follow me, must take up his cross, deny himself, follow me. That's total commitment. And then when the church gets started, the message Peter preaches to thousands of people, he's saying, God came in the flesh. You nailed him to a tree. And then people cry out from the audience, what do we do? He says, repent. Turn from your way of life. Turn to a new way of life, a totally different way of life. Romans chapter 6, verse 4, raised to walk a new way of life. Be baptized. Let everyone know that you're going to live this new life. Total commitment. Contrast that with what we oftentimes hear in the church. You should come to our church. We've got great coffee. In other words, what we can give you. Most people that came to this church, any church in America, has gone, have gone to churches thinking, how will this enrich my life? How will this make me feel warm and fuzzy inside? How am I going to be encouraged? How will this make me love Jesus more? What am I going to get? It's very rare, very rare, that someone looking for a church, we even call it church shopping, someone looking for a church comes and says, where's a group of believers that I can lock arms with on the same mission to give my life away? Most of us are thinking, what can I get? And do you know why? Because we as church leaders act like that's what Jesus wants. Hey, do you think maybe you should become a member? Don't worry, it doesn't mean anything. <laughs> it does mean something. You should, maybe you'll hold a baby once a week, but if you won't hold a baby once a week, we'll just baby you because you need to be fed like you're a child. How many people are you here? I gotta go to church. I'm gonna be fed. If you're not self-feeding after a couple weeks... You're going to die spiritually. And so we want to get, we naturally want to get, and it's my fault, it's church leaders' fault, it's the church in America's fault, 
That's not what Jesus says. That's not what this passage is saying when it says, therefore, connected to the first 11 chapters in view of God's mercy. What's in the first 11 chapters? Well, you go back to chapter one is we got this broken mind. Chapter one, verses 18 to 32, that people saw God. You can see God just in creation, but we suppress his righteousness. We worship creation rather than the creator of all these things. And then we make up the stuff we want to be true. And we do things that are unthinkable, but now have become normal in America. And before you start railing against whatever sin you want to rail against, read Romans chapter 1. Yours is in there too. And then you see all have sinned, Romans chapter 3. Fall short of the glory of God. You get to Romans chapter 6, what a glorious truth in there, but it says the wages of sin, what you earn, the life you're trying to live, even the good things you're trying to do that are so messed up with bad motives. What you earn is death. The wages of sin is death, but the gift, that's God's mercy. The gift is eternal life in Jesus Christ as he gives you something you didn't earn, his righteousness. And that's why there's no condemnation in Christ. That's why there's nothing that can separate you from the love of God. He doesn't just look the other way on your sin. He actually makes you become righteous so that when God looks at you, he doesn't see you were these bad things, that you are the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That should cause you to rejoice. Therefore, in view of those mercies, and see, here's the problem. Many pagan religions, and sometimes Christians function this way, when they would do sacrifices, because he's speaking into an audience of people that sacrifice was religion, not commodity uh, was religion. Sacrifice was religion, so you did sacrifices. Most people did sacrifices hoping that then their gods that they're worshiping would be merciful to them. Christianity is the exact opposite, and it seems like just a slight word change, but it is a game changer in the way you live. What he's saying here is this, because God's been merciful, then live as a sacrifice. Not do nice things and hopefully God will give you what you want in your life, which is how a lot of people live Christianity. Saying, therefore, because God's been so merciful, because he's done all these amazing things for you, therefore, live as a living sacrifice. And you go to the scriptures and you say, well, what is a living sacrifice? We've got two examples in the Bible. One's in Genesis chapter 22, where there's a young man named Isaac, and he's walking up this mountain with his father, Abraham. And we almost always tell the story from Abraham's perspective, and how Abraham's over 100 years old. He's got this son he's always wanted, his most precious, and he's willing to sacrifice him. Because God told him to sacrifice his son. You think, well, that's, that's crazy. Well, that seems contrary to the Bible. But by faith, he's walking up this mountain with a plan to kill his son. And what sometimes we don't think about is, what was this like for Isaac? Because Isaac's about 16 years old. Some of us, it's harder to remember 16 than for others, but do you remember 16? You could see clearly, probably. At least I could see clearly. You were probably faster than you've ever been before in some of your best physical shape of your life when you're 16. Um, Abraham, I'm not saying anything disparaging to old people, but that dude's over 100. Isaac doesn't go up that mountain unwillingly. And what happens is you get to the top of the mountain and he's tied up on the altar. If he wanted to get away, he could have gotten away. If he wanted to overpower his dad, he could have overpowered his dad. He willingly went and it was as though he died. As his father raises his knife above his head, he's going to thrust it through his son's chest because he thinks he's obeying God in this process. And God says, Abraham, Abraham, I've provided a ram. And he provides a substitutionary sacrifice. And everything that happens in Genesis chapter 22 is pointing us to the ultimate sacrifice, which was Jesus Christ. Because it wasn't supposed to be a ram, it was supposed to be a lamb. And Jesus was the lamb of God. That's the other picture of a living sacrifice in scripture. But you know what many of us mistakenly think about the cross? Is that the cross killed Jesus. Or that false accusations against Jesus killed Jesus. The only way you die is because of sin. Jesus didn't have any sin. He says in John chapter 10, no one takes my life, I lay it down. What you see on the cross is that Jesus isn't murdered. He doesn't die because of the torture. He doesn't die because of the thorn crowns. He doesn't die because of the wood beams. He doesn't die because of the nails. He doesn't die because of exhaustion. It's when he commits his spirit. He gives it up. He willingly dies on the cross for your sins and for my sins. Dies the death we deserve to die because of the penalty of our sins. And the only reason it worked for him is because he lived the life, the only righteous life that was ever lived, the life we should have lived. That's a living sacrifice. When you look at those two Examples in the Bible, Isaac and Jesus, they've got two things that are clearly in common. One, they're willing. Two, they're complete. They're willing sacrifices, unlike animals. And Hebrews tells us that no one's sins were ever forgiven because of the blood of bulls and goats. Those animals, when they went to the altar, that wasn't, they didn't know. And if they did know, I'm sure they were drug. <laughs> it wasn't out of love. It wasn't out of obedience. 
And even Isaac, who goes there and he doesn't actually die. It's as though he died. He was willing to give up his life. His whole life wasn't a partial sacrifice. And Jesus, when he died, he really died. He was willing and complete. And that's our example of what it is to be a living sacrifice. So it should be willing and complete. And then you think about that. And we sing songs as Christians. We sing songs like the one we said, you know, take my life, let it be, take my money, take my mind, take my talents, take all those things. Knowing for many of us that we're holding some of that stuff back. We sing, I surrender all, all to Jesus. I surrender, I surrender all, except my kids. <laughs> we don't usually throw that addendum on there. But we hold stuff back. I remember when we first started this church, there was a guy who went to our church who was, his life was changed by learning about financial stewardship. And so that became his passion. And he wanted everybody in our church and he started teaching small groups about financial stewardship. And he said to me one time, he said, Scott, when you baptize most of the people in our church, you should say to them, when you get baptized, you should just hold your wallet up in the air because that's not actually getting baptized. (laughs) And he was trying to give, (laughs) some of you are laughing because you had to, right? (laughs) He was trying to give an example of partial surrender. Now, different people are passionate about different things. Some people might say, hey, I'm passionate about family ministry, and so you should hold up you know, your family and the marriage certificate when you get baptized because you're not really going to do it God's way. Some people, relationships, whatever it is, you could do all kinds of stuff in there. But the point is, we all know this inevitably to be true, that partial surrender is not really surrender. Like, Think about it like this. If you, if you went out in the parking lot today and someone pulled a gun on you and said surrender, you'd know what to do. You'd naturally put your hands up in the air. Because you're showing them, I surrender. Like, I, I'm not, you take my wallet, whatever you want to do, I surrender. Can you imagine a scenario? Imagine a war scenario. Middle East, there's a battle going on. And one soldier pins another soldier down, tells him to surrender. And he comes out with one hand up and the other hand on his gun. But he says, I surrender all. I surrender, I am surrendered to you and starts to walk towards you as the soldier who's holding him. What are you going to do? You're going to shoot them. Why? Because you, you know the universal truth that partial surrender is not surrender. But wait, wouldn't you think to yourself, he's got good intentions. He's got one hand up. I mean, he's halfway there. We're all in process. He's just got this thing for a gun, right? Like, it's just, he just can't let go of the gun. But then think about what we do as Christians. We say that we surrender. I surrender all. Except for my family. I'll control that one, God. I surrender all. But I got this plan for my life. As long as you do it my way, it's surrendered to you. But as soon as you're not doing it my way, I got this. I surrender all. But my wallet, but this relationship, maybe with a boyfriend or girlfriend, maybe with a spouse, maybe with some friend. It's not healthy, and you know it's not healthy, but I'm not going to give that to God. You know that partial surrender is no surrender at all. A living sacrifice is willing and complete. Now, I could give you an example here of somebody extreme, you know, obedient. Somebody who, you know, walks away from North Raleigh and goes and starts an orphanage, living in the third world, and that's a picture of total commitment. And those stories, that stories are valid. I was talking about in the first service, I was interacting with somebody who had just gone to Madagascar, and I said, I could give you Grant and Jody Waller, our missionaries. They left North Raleigh with their kids. They got these kids they're raising and on an island in Africa that's experiencing a famine, and they're planting churches. They planted like 40, I said 20-something, and then somebody in the audience said, no, it's like 40. And I'm like, I'm a pastor who doesn't exaggerate numbers. Can you believe it? Like 40-some church plants they've had out there. And that's, now that is surrender. But then that might make some of you think to yourselves, well, if I don't go and do that, then I'm not really surrendered. Here's what it really looks like. It looks like you think about your life, where you work, the office that you're at, the hospital that you go to, the kids that you raise, the, the traffic you get stuck in. It, we're all in process. That is true. And none of us are perfect. And that's why what I told you when I was praying, I was praying, God, I hate growth because it's painful. But when he makes it apparent to you, when he avails and reveals to you, hey, but you're not surrendering this time, money, the relationship, some talent, whatever it is, what do you do at that moment? And if you say, I got this, that's not surrender. But if you hold it with an open hand, hey, I, hey you, didn't, you weren't aware. You, didn't, you had blind spots. We all have blind spots. You can be totally surrendered to him and have things that you're holding back. You just don't know that at this point. 
And there's much grace. And God is patient. And it's a characteristic of us. He grows us in patience. Some of us, that's what we're holding back. I'm not patient. I want to get it all done. I'm going to do your plan and do it now. That's why I want to put a chip in the back of my head and make this whole thing go really fast, right? So some of you might even know some of my things that I don't know. Which takes us to the next part of this verse. Remember, we're Americans. We live in the West. We naturally think individualistic. We think that the goal in life is independence and self-sufficiency. Let me read to you what this verse says. In the NIV, and I'm getting more and more convinced, I might change next week, I don't know, that I'm going to change from the NIV. I've always preached from the NIV, not because it's my favorite translation, because it's the most popularly sold Bible. And so I assume if a guest comes and they bring a Bible, the most likely one they're going to bring is the NIV. But over the, especially this series, there's been so many times where I'm like, man, I just wish we could say it in the ESV. And so the English Standard Version says it differently than what I'm about to read to you. NIV, offer your bodies, plural, as living sacrifices, plural. But that's not how the text actually is written. The ESV says it like this, and then I want to ask you if you get the difference. Offer your bodies, plural, as a living sacrifice, singular. All of y'all offer your body, and by bodies he means your whole self. Not just, this isn't a spiritual metaphor. He's saying, no, your mind, your body, every, the way you live your life, all I really want it. It's not just in your heart you intend to. No, it's like really offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, even your body as a living sacrifice, the temple of the Holy Spirit. But it's a sacrifice. And so it's this brothers, plural, all of you believers in Rome. By the way, the book of Romans wasn't written to a dude named Roman. <laughs> It's the church in Rome. It's all these believers in Rome. And so he's talking to us, not just when I was talking to you about what do you surrender, what do you hold back? Most of you are thinking your individual lives. Totally get that. That makes sense. We live in the West. That's how we naturally think. But what if I told you this? If you don't fully surrender, it impacts my worship. If I don't fully surrender, it impacts your worship. People in this church, other members of the church, holding things, won't surrender. It impacts the church as a whole. Do you know what would happen? We'd be a lot more like Acts chapter 2 and the early church. And we'd care more intimately about it. We live in a time, don't ask, you don't get people's business. If they want you to know, they're going to tell you. And that's just part of American culture. But we would care, not because we're judging the other We wouldn't sit there and think, oh man, my friend so-and-so really needs to hear this message because of all the stuff they're holding back. Like we're judging them. We'd think, oh, I know that this guy's holding this stuff back and that's hindering our whole body. So I need to, to talk to him about that. Do I have enough relationship with him to talk to him about that? And what are they doing in Acts chapter 2? They're living life together. They're caring for one another. They're sharpening one another. Daily, they're talking about the apostles' teaching. And what is God doing? Daily, he's adding to their number of those who are being saved. So what if there was a church that actually would care about one another so intimately that we'd talk about sin? That we care about each other so intimately that we would help each other work through the difficulty of growth. That we'd pray for one another's burdens. That we'd continually not let people, hey, you th you're thinking, oh, this is not a thought process of the Bible. This is a thought process of our culture, of this time, of this world. And, and you need a different thought process. And we do it not out of judgment or some self-righteousness, but out of care. But who would do that? Well, there's the answer. Only those whose minds have been renewed. That takes us to our second point. A renewed mind is essential to transformation with God. A life transformed by God. Two, we want to use the language of our vision to life change. A renewed mind is essential to a transformed life, to a changed life. And you see it in the next two commands. He gives us a positive and a negative and then a positive command in verse two. Do not conform. There's the negative one. Don't conform any longer to the pattern of this world. And the word world there, some of your translations say age. It's not just the worldly things. It's this thought process that's out there. It's of this age, of living here and now. But you're not a citizen of here and now. If you're brothers, he's writing to believers, you've got a citizenship in heaven of a different age, a different thought process. Don't conform to this age, but be transformed, positive command. And how does that happen? By the renewing of your mind. And there's that promise at the end. Then you'll be able to know God's will. And God's will, whether it's your plan or not, is the perfect plan for you. And he has a plan for you. 
And so think about these two commands. They're in contrast to one another. There's the command, don't be conformed. What does it mean to be conformed? I love the Phillips translation of this verse. In the Phillips translation, it says, don't let the world around you squeeze you into its mold. When I read that verse, I thought, oh, I, the image I get is cake baking. And I don't know how to bake a cake. And so if you're like an awesome baker, you can come up and tell me you messed that up big time. But what I think of is you pour the stuff into a mold and it comes out and it looks like certain things. And to me, certain things look like cake and certain things look like other things. And every once in a while, I'll turn on the, the food network and they'll be making cakes that look like roller coasters. <laughs> That's awesome. There's cake inside of that. That doesn't look like a cake to me or it looks like a guitar or a car or whatever it is. And I think to myself, that's exactly what this word means. Because conformed here means this. The outside doesn't match the inside. And so the outside looks different than what's reality on the inside. Now, oftentimes when we talk about that in church, what we mean is hypocrisy. And what we're talking about is that on the outside, you act like a good Christian, but on the inside, your heart hasn't been changed. That's not what we're talking about in this passage. This is the opposite of that. He's talking about you have been changed, you are a new creation, but when I look at the outside, you look just like everybody else. You've been conformed, squeezed into the mold. You have the same thought process of this age because it's not just outwardly how you look. God's made each one of us to look outwardly differently on purpose. And when he says here not to be conformed, he's not saying, hey, be some Christian weirdo, just so you know. It's not, hey, you got to wear, you know, t-shirts that all have to have Jesus' face on them and him dying on the cross on the back and some verses. That doesn't mean, there's no such thing as Christian clothes, just so you know. There's some things that look pretty non-Christian, not modest by that, is what I mean by that. But there, there's no such, like, there's no uniform in the Bible. God's made each one of us different. And so you can express yourself through your clothes, dress differently. He's not talking about that outward conformity. An easy illustration is to say, well, think about, you know, teenagers, and they all want to be different. But then they all have the same shirt on, and they all have the same haircut, and they all use the same hair product to get that haircut. And they're all using the same phone as they take their own selfies and put it on each other's pages. And it's like, why do they do that? Because adults do it too. It's to fit in. That's conformity, though, is fitting in. It's fitting into the way that people think on this age. And the way that people think in this age is they believe lies. And that's what Romans chapter 1 through 3 talk about. You've suppressed the truth and you believe deception. And that deception changes the way that you view everything else. And so what are some of the lies? The lies of this age. Now, there are people in our church that believe some overtly obvious lies. Like, it's clear they're not true. For instance, I can cheat on my wife. It's just once. It won't hurt anybody. And then they do it. And they realize, no, there's a ripple effect. There's consequences. I can cheat on my taxes. I can lie on my resume. Like, there's people that struggle with, have struggled with, or even currently are struggling with. My life is meaningless. It is pointless. I should take my own life. Most of us hearing that right now think, well, that's clearly not true. Not, not true from Scripture. Not true for your life. But there's more subtle ones. Think about when Jesus was tempted. In Matthew chapter 4, what Satan does is he takes scripture, slightly twists that. He comes as an angel of light. What are some subtle lies that have believed, millions of Christians have believed the American dream? That's a deception, by the way. It's contrary to scripture. It's not how we're to live our lives. But how many Christians have been forced into this mold of thinking, I'll just, I'll work my life 60 years and I'll store up and I'll keep and I'll keep saving and I'll check about every 15 minutes at the office to see how things are going with that whole plan. And then at the end of my life, I'm going to spend it all on me. So I deserve it. I'm going to take a break. You're not immoral. You're, you're not hurting people. How subtly deceptive that is. But you're wasting your life. What impact are you having for the kingdom? I gave some tips along the way. Nice. When you get there and it's only been 80, 90 years here and you spend eternity there, is that, are you, is that how you want to store up treasure in heaven? Deceived. We're deceived. So what do we do? It says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And notice here, we love transformation. Everybody in America loves transformation. It's why we love the house renovation shows. Uh, move that bus. Chip and Joanna, pull the pictures away. We want to see the new house. And it's exciting to see a house go from like, Sometimes not even safe, like cluttered and messy and outdated to it's like looks brand new. And you're like, wow, that's a, we'd love to see that transformation. Or the show The Biggest Loser. Have you seen that show where people come on, they lose like hundreds of pounds. Their body, they'll show pictures where it's like, how in the world did that happen? And, they, and not only that, but they change their thinking. Not biblical, but it's better than what they were at. And so we love that transformation. And so what do we do to be transformed? We're commanded, don't conform, be transformed. How can I be transformed? That's actually a passive command here. To allow yourself to be transformed. It's the Holy Spirit that does the work of the transforming. 
So what do we do? Well, if you read the first 11 chapters, it's not that you don't have any role in this. There is discipline. There are things that you do. And here's the summary of it. Let your mind be saturated with the truth. What does Jesus do? He's always the, temp- he's always the example, by the way, in case you didn't know that in church. He's the example of the living sacrifice. He's the example of what do you, what, how do you battle lies? Well, when he was being tempted in Matthew chapter 4, every time, do you know what he countered the twisted scripture with? The scripture, it is written, it is written, it is written, and he gave truth. Here's the problem for many of us. We have lies that we believe we don't even realize that they're lies. There's been such a part of our life. I've said many times, lies that we live by or the beliefs that change our behavior. And that's being conformed. And when you get transformed, it's allowing your mind to be saturated with the truth in such a way that it transforms how you're thinking. Your mind is broken. That's why we do Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32, that we change God. We trade God for creation. And we worship the creation rather than the creator because we have broken minds. We suppress his righteousness he's dealt with that for us, but you have to let the truth sink in. And I've asked a couple, Carrie and Alan Evans, to come up here and let me help you see how this actually works. And I also asked, as they're on their way up here, um, a few friends of mine in our church, I don't remember how many people it was now, but I emailed them so I didn't just tell you the lies that sometimes I'm tempted to believe. I emailed a group of folks and I said, what are the lies that either you believe or the people you minister to believe that you believe are part of of what changes the way that we live? And I got a list of 20 I'm just going to read to you and then they're going to help me illustrate at least a couple of them. Let me give you what I was given by several of my friends, male and female in our church. I'm ugly. God can't love me. God can't use me. I've gone too far. I'm not gifted. All these have a counter truth in the scripture, by the way. In fact, read the next part of Romans chapter 12 for that one if you want to see the gifts and how they're to be used for the whole body. God's holding out on me. That was Eve's sin. God's holding out. i got to eat this. God doesn't want me to have what's best. He's that fruit. God's love is based on my behavior. Some sins are okay with God. He understands. God doesn't care about the little things. He's too busy for that. God doesn't care, period. Something other than God will make me happy. Something other than God is worthy of my attention, dedication, and life. How many of us have been duped by that one? I can do this on my own. The opposite of some of the others. But we're not all the same. Satan knows your chinks and your armor. He knows how to get you. How about this one? Follow your heart. (laughs) That's deceptive and wicked and deceitful above all things. Just do what you think is best. A real Christian wouldn't think like that. Oh, that goes with that one. God doesn't, wouldn't, or maybe even can't use me. I'm not a clean vessel. God doesn't love you. You just need to try harder. God has no plans for me. God can't or won't forgive me. I've asked Carrie and Alan to stand here, and I want to just take a couple of those lies and and show you how they work in people's lives. They're not necessarily theirs, although I think I'm going to ask you guys for some of them, so maybe I'll hit on it, but they need relationship with you in order to figure that out. So they've agreed that I can say anything I want at this moment, almost, but I'll, I'll pick some from this list. Let's assume that they believe some of these lies. Let me tell you how this will go. Let's say that Alan believes the lie that God's holding out on him. But they get in the car today after church is over with and everybody's gone and they get in and Carrie says truth to him and says, hey, you know, Pastor Scott was saying that sometimes we hold some things back and I was thinking about some stuff that we hold back. And she says whatever it is for them, their time, their money, talents that they have, whatever it is. He hears the truth and and he's a believer. You want to do what's right. But if he believes this lie that God's holding out on him, like Eve believes the lie, God's holding, God doesn't necessarily want what's best for me. There might be something better than what God's offering. God's plan is that I can't have any fun. You can phrase it lots of ways. And this must be the fruit was good. It looked good to eat. If he believes that lie, then he can say and appease, carry, in whatever way he wants to do that at that moment, because that's oftentimes what we'll do as Christians. You're right. Maybe we'll up our tithe a little bit. Maybe we'll do five more minutes here. Whatever the thing is, appeasing, placating. But in his heart, if he believes this lie, he's going to keep holding something back. Because if God's holding out, I got to take care of me. And so that's how it works. And so if he hears, it's almost like I've said to some people before when we've been in counseling, I've said, it's like there's these recordings, these narratives that we hear in our mind, and they come from various places, from culture, from our parents, from whatever it is. We have three main enemies in life, by the way. It's our flesh, which is ourselves, the world system, and Satan. And he is the father of lies, and he wants to steal, kill, and destroy you. And so he's going to give you stuff that's opposite of truth. And so we get these things, and maybe his is God's holding out on me. And then this other narrative is playing while Carrie's talking. We should surrender more, and we don't do this, and, yeah, and he knows it's true, but there's this other truth that's not true that plays in his head. Let's say Carrie believes a lie on here that I'm ugly. 
She's obviously not ugly, a beautiful young lady that's here. And Alan says to her, he comes home from work this week, buys her some flowers on Tuesday, hint. <clears throat> comes home, puts it on my credit card apparently. Comes home, says, Carrie, you just look so beautiful today. If she believes the lie that she's ugly, and not the scripture, not, I'm not talking about subjective beauty, not the scripture that says that she is fearfully and wonderfully made, that God made her exactly the way that he wanted to make her. She believes something. We all have things we don't like about ourselves, right? When, she, when he says this statement, you're so beautiful. And every husband should say that to their wife, by the way, a little parenthetical. Husbands, just so you know, your wife is your standard of beauty. So if you're married to a redhead, you don't like blondes. That is your standard of beauty. And so this is his standard of beauty. And he says, honey, you're beautiful. But she thinks, well, he, he must not have looked at my ears or whatever it is she doesn't like about herself. Or she just hears, well, really, I'm pretty average. He has to say it because Scott said on Tuesday, you got to bring me flowers. I wouldn't do it on Tuesday. <laughs> because it's like there's this recording that plays in her mind that tells her it's a lie she lives by, that she's ugly. And so it changes the way that she lives. And so what you say and I say, she's got a counter to that. And we build up these things. Someone tells you, if you think, I'm, you know, I can't, I'm, I'm never going to do enough for God. I've got to behave a certain way for him to bless me. You believe some of those lies. And then someone says, yeah, you did a really good job. And you'd go, well, really, it was somebody else's idea. It wasn't really that much work. Like you, you think it's humility, and it comes across as Christianly. And the reality is it's based on the lies that you believe. Or say they believe... Um, the opposite. Say, Alan, he's a sharp dude, really talented. Instead of thinking that, uh, you know, he's got to hold back from God, or instead of thinking that he's ugly, he thinks, I got this. I can do this on my own. Then the pattern of the life would be for the person who believes that lie is this. Basically, I'm adequate. I'm smart enough. I'm talented enough. I'm successful enough. Every once in a while, there's something really tragic that comes in life, like cancer type stuff, Real, car accident, the kids get hurt. And then I have to depend on God. That's when I pray. That's when I read my Bible. Otherwise, I got this. And you live self-sufficient, independent, the exact opposite of what God calls you to by faith. So these lies change the way that we live. So what do you do? Well, the text says be transformed. Then do you know what you do? You've got to have the truth transforming your life. So you have to have the truth saturate your life. So there's truths that are like basic truths. I say almost all the time, God loves you. We love you. A lot of people that just like zips by. For God to love the world, of course God loves the world. Some people have a narrative that says, well, God doesn't really love me. He couldn't love me. Here's why, with me, if he loved me, then why do these things happen? If and there's all these narratives that play in their heads. What if you just sat on the truth and let it saturate your mind, had other people that would speak truth into your life, and you just grasped that one truth? Do you realize what changed the way you view the entire world? That's what it's talking about to be transformed, by the way. It's not just, hey, there's this bad thought, let's change it with this other. And it's like this mechanical, let's do surgery, remove this lie, insert this truth. That's not what it is. As if you would have the truth of God saturating your mind, it changed the way you'd look at all your circumstances and all the world, and it would change those lies. The lies would eventually go away, you'd live according to the truth. And then the last part of the verse becomes natural. You'd know God's will because your mind is saturated with his word. And so it's not a trick of like, does he want me to do this or want me to do this? He's giving you these commands. He's giving you these promises. You're living according to those things. Then do that. And the circumstances he handles because he's sovereign and you trust that truth. What if you just sat on one truth? I was telling the first service, that I have a friend this week that I was talking to that loves dark chocolate. And he said, he's offended when people chew dark chocolate. And I thought to myself, is there any other way? I said to him, what do you do with dark chocolate? And he said, I just put it in my mouth. And then with eyes of judgment, he said, you're a chewer, aren't you? <laughs> I was like, yeah, I didn't know. I didn't even know there was another way. Forgive me. And the idea is he just, he just sits in it. What if you just sat in some of these truths? Instead of letting them go by you, God loves you. You're fearfully and wonderful made. That God's sovereign. That he's in control. What if you just sat on some of these things? So you come to a passage like Ephesians chapter 3 and you're reading it on your own as you're reading the Bible. And it says, Paul's praying for the Ephesian believers. I want you to know the height, the depth, the length, the width of the love of Christ. And instead of reading by that, like a verse a day keeps the devil away and I've got to get my Bible in. What if you just sat on part of that? Like you're letting it sit on your tongue. 
And you say, forget about the width of his love that he spread his arms out for me to demonstrate his love, the length of his love, the length that he go to to demonstrate his love to me. Forget that. What if I just focus on the depth of his love? And then no matter how well I perform, that he loves me, and my performance doesn't make him love me anymore. Or no, no matter how bad I am, I can't make him not love me. And so when your wife comes to you and you think, well, I'm not good enough, I'm, bad. I'm so bad that she could never love me, and if she really, and God does, but she couldn't, and she says, I love you, Alan, you're doing such a great job leading our home, and, and, you, and your narrative says, well, if she just knew that one time I, and the thoughts that I have are this, but you had just sat in the fact that God loves you unconditionally, regardless of what you do, regardless of what's been done, regardless of what's happened to you, you think that would change the way you'd view the world? Just let it sit. Why is it that when Jesus is tempted, you know, it was a real temptation. Turn these stones to bread. He hadn't eaten in 40 days. He has real flesh. He is really a person and fully God. So he knows the truth perfectly. He says, man doesn't live on bread alone, but on the very words of God. What's going to satisfy you? So what do you do? How are you transformed? Let me tell you how you're transformed. You have to let the transforming truth saturate your lives, which means you've got to read your Bible. More than just here. I had a professor in seminary that t- told me, he said, don't ever let your preaching substitute their eating. It should just be a stimulus to them that they can see how good the food is that they want to go back to it on their own. And so you get in the word on your own. I remember when I first became a Christian, though, I felt like every sermon ended with, read your Bible and pray. <laughs> can I tell you the application for this sermon? Read your Bible and pray. And... You need other believers in your life that also know the truth, that will speak the truth into your life. So that means you have to be vulnerable enough to let them in. You have to trust them. And when they hurt you, then you work through the problems. That's what the church does. This is written to the church, and you'll know. Can you imagine a church that would know? You'll know God's will. It's good, pleasing, perfect will for you. It can be a living sacrifice. It's a complete sacrifice. Willing and complete being transformed because you're fully surrendered. How? By being transformed by the truth. God's truth has to get in you. I'm going to pray that it gets into Carrie and Alan. I'm going to pray that it gets into each one of us. Let's pray. Father, I come before you and I thank you for this awesome couple, Alan and Carrie, their willingness to stand up here, be an example to our congregation. I pray that as people looked at them, they saw themselves standing up here. And they thought about the moments when they believe lies. And then you gave them supernaturally your truth into those lies. Will you combat those lies with your truth? Will you transform our minds? Will you renew our minds? Will you, we are a new creation. We have a new identity. Will you reveal that to us and help us to live and walk in that? Father, I pray not just for Carrie and Alan. I pray for myself. As I grow, I pray I would savor and love you more. I pray for our body as we grow, not just a number of people who are being saved, but keep doing that, please. But as we grow spiritually, that we would love you more, know you more, and walk in your truth. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.